I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of This Week at VA. I'm your host, Timothy Lawson. I want to share a couple things that I typically include near the end of an episode to ensure that each of our listeners are aware. The first is you can submit questions to be addressed here on the show by tweeting us at DEPT Vet Affairs using hashtag VA podcast, or you can email us newmedia at va.gov. So let us know what your question is regarding, uh, regarding VA, and I will do my best to address it here on the show. On Twitter, it's important to use that hashtag because we are included in a lot of mentions on Twitter, and referencing the hashtag is a more effective way for me to reference it. Secondly, if you are ever interested in nominating a veteran of the day, visit blogs.va.gov, click on any veteran of the day post, and at the bottom of the post, you will see information on how you can nominate a deserving veteran for this recognition. And again, it can be any veteran. They don't have to have any certain accolade. They don't have to be from any certain generation. They just need to be a veteran that you would like to make veteran of the day. Lastly, to see more stories from the veteran community, follow us on your social media of choice. We're at DEPT Vet Affairs on Twitter and Instagram, and we're at Facebook.com slash Veterans Affairs. Our own generated content, of course, is at our Vantage Point blog, blogs.va.gov. Now on to our interview. This week, I talk with Army veteran Bob Wright. Bob served in Vietnam with 101st Airborne as a battalion surgeon's assistant. Many years later, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Many years later, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Bob was introduced to me by an organization called Us Too, which is an organization that uh, helps support and advocates for men at all stages of prostate cancer, whether it's diagnosis, survival, uh, or anywhere in that spectrum. Uh, Bob is going to talk to us about his experience with cancer, his service in the military, and his leadership now with support groups uh, helping other men uh, dealing with the same situation. Enjoy. Okay, Bob Wright, Army veteran. Sir, thank you so much for joining us on This Week at VA. Bob, tell us about, uh, we start every, uh, every interview with, uh, the question of why did you join the military? That's something that we all have in common is, uh, is that sense of ser- or that serving our country. Bring us back to that day for you. Well, I come from a military family, which was all Air Force. My father was in the Air Force, and I was in college, and basically in the 60s, as most of us know, in the 60s, you were either in, in college, uh, and had a draft because of your exemption because you were in college or you got out and then kind of dodged or didn't dodge the bullet of the draft. And so I made a decision between my sophomore and junior year in college to go ahead and enroll in Army ROTC so that if I did end up serving, I knew I would probably go to Vietnam, that I would at least be with with a 
branch of the service that I selected. And I was a biology major, and then with a minor in military science. And that's how I kind of, that's how I got into the Army. And so do you have, uh, is there a story or an experience you had during your time uh, in the service, either in Vietnam or, or in Garrison, uh, that maybe sums up your, your time in service or the epitome of it? I think the story was I worked with some really neat physicians uh, at the battalion level or even the division level at 101st Airborne that were really fully dedicated. And it was really a very neat thing to watch and be part of uh, the medical profession, for lack of other words, under fire, you know, just in, in combat zones and stuff going on because the, their skill set is, is very focused, uh, it's very practical, uh, and uh, I, I, I learned to admire that and understand how important that was. And I, what was really neat is if, if, you'd, if I didn't wear my fatigue jacket with a little black lieutenant bar on it, uh, they would call me Doc. And from that, I just realized that at that point in time, whatever's going on, I am their doctor. And although I wasn't a medical doctor, I was their doc. And that kind of uh, made me realize that this was really important. And I was lucky. I came in country with five second lieutenants. I was the only medical service corps. Three months later, three of the five were, were dead, artillery or infantry. So I, I knew that, thank God, I was in the medical service corps. So um, uh, that kind of, you know... It kind of uh, changes everything. You are currently a uh, you're a support group leader and a uh, you're a survivor and an advocate uh, for an, with an organization called Us Too. It's an organization that uh, that supports um, survivors and those that are um, that have been um, inflicted with prostate cancer. Now. The uh, a member of the organization reached out to me asking if I wanted to uh, feature anybody in, in this. Uh, the subject of prostate cancer uh, is a little closer to me because my my family, my immediate family, is three for three on surviving cancer. Uh, I survived when I was seventeen. My mom survived breast cancer, and then my father most recently um, survived prostate cancer. If you're comfortable with it, I'd like to hear your story first before we before we move on to uh, your advocacy and, and you as a support group leader. Would you mind sharing your story? I had been I had come back from Vietnam and had been you know home for uh, over ten years and. Uh, almost over 20 years, and basically he was a very healthy person and had no signs or symptoms, but was seeing a private physician in deep south Texas and um, who noticed I had I had a normal uh, PSA blood test, which is 2.4, uh, but he never gave me a digital rectal exam to check out my prostate uh, digitally. Uh, and uh, basically he kind of missed examining me, and but he did send me to a gastroenterologist to have a, my colonoscopy every five years because my brother had colon cancer and uh, instead of every 10 years. And uh, at that particular procedure, the gastroenterologist, when he was done, he said, well, Mr. Wright, you look fine. We took a couple samples, uh, polyps, and they should be okay. But he said, you have a very abnormal prostate. You need to see a urologist. I was in the hospital business, so it was, it was pretty easy to get into a urologist's office. So I went to a urologist that I knew and when he examined me, I tell the guys in our groups that doctors don't say S-H-I-T out loud, but his voice changed after he examined me, and I could hear the hear the concern in his voice. And he said, well, we need to get you scanned and checked out. So I, they ran a bunch of scans. The good news was 
They saw nothing on the scans. Um, interesting enough, though, when they did the biopsies, uh, my Gleason scores, which is how they evaluate uh, how aggressive prostate cancer is from 1 to 10, my Gleason scores post-biopsy basically were 9s. And so I knew I kind of had to do something fairly quickly, but we were, and then uh, um, after they did the surgery and, and did the pathology, my Gleason scores were 10s. So, but I, I still remember going to the urologist with my wife here in Austin, who was the surgeon, and he, uh, my wife asked the question, she said, what could have caused this? And he said, well, we don't really know. And he mentions exposure to um, electronic things once in a while, and he mentioned, he said, or herbicides, and uh, my wife said, you mean, she just out of the blue, I don't know, she said, you mean like Agent Orange? And he said, yes. And at the time he said yes, he not only said yes, but he made a note in the my medical chart, you know, Vietnam veteran exposed to Agent Orange. And then I got to an oncologist with Texas Oncology here in the state of Texas, and he, he had said, he said, well, you're very lucky, and I asked, I said, I know I was lucky because I was still alive, and I asked, uh, why do you say that? And he said, uh, he said, Bob, in 12 to 18 months, you would have been inoperable. So I'm a prostate cancer survivor exposed to Agent Orange who's still here because I think um, I got to a gastroenterologist who noticed I had an abnormal prostate. But um, And then I got diagnosed. I had Da Vinci robotic surgery uh, at my surgery. Um, the night of the surgery, you're supposed to get up and walk around because there's a lot of CO2 gas in the abdominal area to move the organs away from the prostate. And uh, I was hooked up to an IV. And I just share this with you because uh, being diagnosed with prostate cancer and having the treatments were uh, precipitating factors that were causing me to have uh, PTSD again. And uh, and I didn't know all this stuff. I just knew how I was reacting. And... and uh, my family had been there. My wife was still in the room. My, one of my daughters had just left. And the nurse said to me, Mr. Wright, would you like to get up and walk around? And I, the IVs were hooked up. And I said, sure. But they pulled the uh, blanket off of me and some of the sheets down, and the, the part of the dressings were soaked in blood. And I was a medic, and um, it triggered a, a reaction in me somehow, and I... I coded my blood pressure bottomed out, and they called the code team in. And I, I didn't, I wasn't out very long. But when I opened my eyes, there were all these people around, and uh, it just told me, um, as a veteran, that my issues with PTSD were not over with. And uh, I'm sorry, this I still get. I don't share this with very many people, uh, but it's important that, particularly Vietnam veterans, who carry. Be they in Vietnam, exposed to Agent Orange, or just veterans in general, carry a lot of emotional baggage that can precipitate and somewhat limit their healing if they're not if they don't get help. Um, and I was severely depressed and kind of you know the poor pitiful thing. And I was getting my wife's oil changed at a Toyota dealer once. I walk in, there was a guy sitting there with a 101st Airborne hat on, and I. I went over and said, hey, and I had a little blue, uh, uh, prostate cancer guys get a little blue wristband. That's what my surgeon gave me. You see, you're now a survivor. And this guy looked at my little band. He said, hey, what is that? I said, well, that's prostate cancer. And I knew nothing between the connection of prostate cancer back to the VA. I knew nothing about that. He said, well, you need to go to a vet center, and, and uh, they can help you. Well, the vet center in our county helped me connect to a, 
private psychiatrist with the PTSD issues and then helped me also connect to the VA to see what they could do. And um, in this journey, I basically made a conscious decision and I kind of, I'm a spiritual person, so I just said, okay, God, I, I wasn't brave enough to ask to be healed, but I said, if you'll keep me well enough, I'll help other men. And then I ran into a guy from Austin, Texas, who I was referred to from a guy that I knew in the Valley. His name was Mike Jones. And he started a chapter with Us Two International, which is a national prostate cancer support education advocacy group in Austin, Texas. And I came, met Mike, and he just kind of took me under his wing because all the stuff that we learn medically in doctor's offices and scans and all the stuff they do to us doesn't really necessarily give us the wherewithal to heal emotionally. And uh, Mike just took me under his wing and taught me a lot of stuff that would be helpful, and I knew that, uh, you know, he came and he helped us start a chapter in McAllen, and I ran that chapter for several years, and I think the, the, the positive thing, and we have a lot of veterans in our group, um, guys who go to support groups, and they're not, I say not all support groups are the same. So some groups that I've been to are death and dying groups. Everybody's so remorseful, and you know, and I, I've made a decision not to go to those groups, but uh, we're very proactive and very support and education and oriented and they begin to share with each other and talk to each other and what I did is I volunteered at the VA and I just wanted to make sure that veterans uh, got help uh, because and I think it really helps if veterans can get out from the umbrella of the environment that's kind of bringing them down which could be around other veterans and get out into what I call the quote-unquote normal community and get around other civilian veterans or non-veterans or veterans, um, it can be very helpful. And so I just, I've been doing it. And I think what the difference is, if you become not just a survivor, a survivor could be just defined as uh, I'm still alive and I'm not no longer sinking in the water. Uh, but if you, be, you have to have a reason, a reason for surviving. And uh, my reason was and has been uh, uh, helping other guys. And uh, it's an amazing thing, purposeful thing, because when you get kind of focused on yourself and the phone rings and there's another veteran or another prostate cancer survivor who just needs someone to talk to. And each of our journeys are unique. Each patient is unique. But in your uniqueness, you can be a special chapter in a book about everybody else's journeys that makes you unique and helpful to someone who's taking the same path that you're taking. So, yeah, it's, it's been uh, in these support groups. What sort of what's being shared amongst the the men that are involved? It's really very interesting because when um, when men first come, I, I, I call them the brave. Only the brave ones seek help. Now, what's happening different in our groups when we first started? We seldom have ever gotten men newly diagnosed, or we seldom ever gotten men pre-treatment. Now, because the physicians referring them to our support groups, we get men. Some of them, you know, come in and have been diagnosed, you know, the week before. And what usually happens is we do a roundtable always when we begin, because we always usually have really good speakers. But on the roundtable, people get to kind of update everybody else in the room on what their status is, and you can just see 
the guys that are there, particularly when they're new, they're thinking, wow, this is neat. This is really interesting because there's other guys here just like me. And, uh, they're they're managing and they're getting through things and we because we have some newly diagnosed all the way to 25 or 30 year survivors and it's it's an interesting kind of and the trend we're seeing now kind of it's anecdotal somewhat but we're seeing younger men in their 50s now coming in being diagnosed and so um, and we just we just share I mean it's free now nothing goes outside the meeting you know, about anybody else specific to what they may have said in the meeting. We never can speak by name disparagingly about a physician or a hospital. Um, now, one-on-one, if I'm one-on-one with a person uh, or there's another survivor one-on-one, they can you can share whatever you want to one-on-one. But we cover the full gamut, including impotence and incontinence. And what we're doing now, we do a summer session. We're going to call it... Uh, Instead of chemotherapy, we're going to call it emotherapy, which is short for emotional therapy, and do a three-month session on the emotional aspects of survivorship. And uh, the guys just do, you just see them, you know, they just get better because they're in a support group. So, Yeah. Um, what, what do you get out of those support groups being a leader? I get better. <laughs> I get the satisfaction of knowing that I've been kept around for a special purpose, uh, and uh, that purpose has meaning, and I can contribute to that. And uh, but I also have to heal too emotionally and other things. And uh, their journey is part of my journey. My journey is part of their journey. And uh, I guess I get the just real deep inherent feeling of I've helped somebody else now. And really, that goes back to the military. Once a medic, always a medic. It's part of your DNA. <laughs> you, it's 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 kind of part of who you are. It's how you were trained. It's how you were educated, uh, and it it stays with you. So, what's a what's a skill set that you got from your time in the military that you find is contributing to your involvement in helping others? I think it probably had to be as a officer even at the lowest level you know second lieutenant that you are uh, responsible for and accountable for and um, compassionately um, driven by taking care of your your fellow soldiers and uh, it's just it's just that's part of you that's what you get out of leadership <laughs> so yeah Kind of kept, kind of kept us going. I noticed here in the in the in the list of prostate cancer facts, the top one is prostate cancer has no symptoms until the disease is advanced. That's pretty much true. Uh, I, I, the only symptom I had was, you know, I'm not, this not. I had I had blood in my semen and it scared me. And so I went to the same family doctor, and he gave me some medicine because he thought I had an infection. Well, he, he didn't do too much, but that was my very very first and only symptom, and. He didn't respond to it. Of course, uh, I didn't need it at the time because he wasn't worried. But usually, um, by the time if you wait till there are symptoms, it usually can mean that the disease is becoming metastatic. Now, either at the cellular level where it's just showing up in your PSA blood test, or at the tumor level where it can be seen other places in scans. Now, because the problem is once it leaves the prostate bed. You 
you have a harder time doing surgery to eliminate it or doing radiation to eliminate it. You have to chase it with other things. One of the things is hormone therapies, which take away your testosterone. And there, there are some chemotherapies out there now that weren't available 10 years ago, but uh, it's a much more difficult disease to manage. There are 185,000 men a year get diagnosed with prostate cancer. About 26,000 of them die. Um, and it is, it, if caught early, early means pretty much within the prostate and treatable, it's, it's probably about 90% uh, treatable. So, but it has to be, has to be caught early. With with a lot of the veterans and and just the other any of the men that you work with, what do you what do you see as being their? Um, I guess I mean I suppose death is the easy answer here. But what what is their biggest fear? What what uncertainty are they most uh, scared of? Well, once they get over the big C word, which takes a while, uh, and the trauma of that, when men get a diagnosis of cancer, uh, particularly military men, we become built like vigilant warriors <laughs> they go crazy and start searching the internet and they, and they they get all the information they can from sometimes credible or incredible sources and because they know that their next biggest challenge is now that it's there what am i going to do about it okay and then in the what i'm going to do about it uh each any of those options have upsides and downsides and uh if they if they think they've chosen the wrong thing and the outcomes are not good, they carry a lot of burden for you know not choosing what they thought was the right thing. But um, and, and you know there's the uh, you know and then usually after that you know, they check your PSA every three months. I'm, I'm ten years out and I still when I see my a doctor annually, I, I, the first score I want to see on my labs is my PSA score. So you're um, you're an us two support group leader, and you said you volunteer at VA. Are those two things? So are those support groups happening at the VA? Or are those two separate? No, it, it depends on efforts. the VA. When I first started doing this as a patient, uh, we started a, a spinoff group of us two. It wasn't us two; it had another name. It's called Hope. It's called helping other patients emotionally, and it was for all cancers. And uh, and, and a psychologist they helped to start it, but. Um, uh, the danger there, Tim, was in those groups. Um, we weren't getting any referrals from the primary care docs, although we'd have meetings with them and talk and make presentations. And a lot of the veterans would come. But what we noticed, what was really uh, depressing to me as a leader, is we lost a lot of them. They were dying. And um, so I, uh, you know, it wasn't. I, it wasn't fulfilling for me. Then I decided, well, I won't try to get veterans to come to a support group in the clinic, but I will open our doors and really help try to help any veterans who come to us too. And I, what I did was made a point of if I get a veteran on the phone, a lot of times I'll volunteer and go with them to their their, their first, last, or middle oncology uh, appointment so that the doctor there, be it a private doctor or even a VA doc knows that there's a fellow survivor patient advocate with them. I've also gone with them when they go on the benefit side to apply for benefits. So, and that's rewarding because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not smart. I just learn from everything I've been around. So I learn from doing these things and everything I learn, I make sure I apply it to help somebody else in their journey. And the VA can be very complicated because the medical side and the and the uh, the, the uh, 
benefit side are kind of somewhat two different worlds and um but i i've in, i've enjoyed that advocacy role more in the VA than I have the support group role because I had to go outside of the VA to have that kind of stay viable. Yeah. So. Do you, um, the, the support groups that you lead, is it, do you, is it just for prostate cancer or do you, or yeah, anybody? It's just prostate cancer. That's too, is, uh, for prostate cancer survivors, their significant others or their uh, healthcare providers. So it's specific to men with prostate cancer, but, spills over into their caregivers and their spouses and stuff. Yeah. It's it, cancer's a, it's such a weird time in in your life. It's the your the dynamic and way in in which people interact with you shifts. Yeah. Um, and it's even as the patient it's impossible to get people to to not do that. Um, you like just the way they talk to you and the way they treat you and it's nice at first, but after a while it's like, all right, like I'm doing this. It's, it's in my life, but you know, we can still have a normal relationship like we did before. I think that's especially true, Tim, to the younger diagnosed patients who have a lot of social interaction and growth that, because you only want to hear that so much. And then you say, listen, you know, cool it. I want to kind of just not have to process or think about this. Now the, the thing that, catches most men with prostate cancer the average age is 61 a lot of those men like myself are then they're nearing retirement and so their real their real purpose and and connectivity in life had to do with their work and then all of a sudden that's transitioning and changing so they kind of have another major obstacle and challenge to deal with and if they're in the military it's even worse because in the military you've got all this infrastructure around you this purposeful mission-driven infrastructure that the civilian sector didn't have. I spoke at a group of prostate cancer uh, survivors at the San Antonio Military Medical Center, a large group, about 50 people, and I just made some observations. I said, first of all, the wives came, the military wives come. In the civilian sector, it's kind of hit and miss, but the room was packed with most every survivor had a spouse with them. And And then I looked and saw that in military medicine, everything connects. The medical record, where you go, what you do, everything is part of a system that automatically feeds back into anybody that accesses it on your behalf in the medical world. And in the civilian sector, we don't have that. We bounce around from this specialty to that specialty. We change insurances. We do all this stuff. And I, and I told them in the group, I said, listen, you guys are very fortunate. And they kind of know they are. And I said, not only are you fortunate, you don't bear any of the financial burdens directly out of your pocket for the care you're given. And I said, that's a real gift. So and they, they understood that. But what I sensed in that group as compared to, quote, unquote, a generalized civilian group, is they're more mission-oriented and mission-driven. And uh, I think probably have more camaraderie around them to help them kind of – now. Then there's the ego, you know, there's this ego and thinking I can do it myself and stuff, but it's uh, it's a little bit different. You know, in a way, it's kind of, it's, it's pretty good, it's pretty good stuff, you know, for them to be in that arena, so... If if someone listening uh, has a family member or they themselves are uh, are, exper- are new to prostate cancer, experiencing prostate cancer, and are interested in a support group, how can they how can they seek that out? If they'll go to the US Two International website on the internet and click on support groups and click on the state they're in, they'll be able to find 
names of where there are chapters. Now, if there's a chapter, you know, if they click on Texas and they click on Austin, they can find me. If there's not a chapter close to where they are, then just being on the Us2 website itself with a lot of very, very, very good information will be helpful to them. Bob, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me and my audience about, uh, about your time in the service, your uh, your experience with cancer. I'm really... I'm, it, Thankfully, you're, you made it on the other side and you're, you're now serving other veterans and other men that are going through a similar experience. And I think that's, uh, uh, I commend you for that, sir. Thanks, Tam, and I appreciate your calling. Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I would be talking, but I wasn't there with them. You just feel so alone. I still had the anger, I still had the addictions, but we didn't talk about that. Came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go to the VA, you're a veteran, see what they can do to help you. When you have family, friends, when you have the facilities like the VA and the vet center, it gives me, it gives others encouragement to keep moving forward. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people because it takes true strength to ask for help. Talking with with other veterans was the best method for learning the roadmap to success. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I'm sure when many, many people think of VA, they think of a medical system that takes care of general health and battle injuries. VA actually does a lot of work with cancer in both research and treatment. An example of treatment, uh, some of you may remember, in an earlier episode of the podcast, we spoke with Department of State employee Michael Lumpkin, who chose to use VA to handle his cancer when he was diagnosed. On the research side, VA has been an early pioneer in uh, many aspects and On the research side, VA was an early pioneer in connecting smoking with cancer. We helped advance lung cancer screening. The VA has been a major contributor to research on prostate cancer, colon cancer, testicular cancer, breast cancer, and more. The URL that has more information on this is a bit too complicated, so if you Google va.gov space cancer, you should see a link to VA research on cancer. You can use that page to see a long list of research VA has done uh, involving that part uh, of the medical field. Today's veteran of the day is Army veteran Carl Woida. Carl served from 1962 to eight. Carl served from 1962 to 1986. In his 24 years in the Army, he served as a warrant officer and missile technician in Germany and Korea. We thank Carl for his service. To read Carl's full write-up and to nominate your own Veteran of the Day, visit blogs.va.gov. That does it for episode 29. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I know there are a lot of options out there for entertainment, so I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these powerful stories. To have a question addressed here on the show, tweet them to us using hashtag VA podcast or email us newmedia at va.gov. As always, be sure to check out blogs.va.gov for more from our community. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off. Mm-hmm.